0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with George Saunders, author of the story collection, Liberation Day.
1: The one thing I've really, I'm kind of in awe of is the way that your mind, the mind, can take on a job like writing a four page story and account for all of the, I mean, really millions of variations that are possible in that story. You know, you change one word, it changes the whole story. And yet we can do that.
0: We'll be back with George Saunders after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday, it takes hustle to do this show, and that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing, on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters, Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years, delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe and I hope you do too is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show. And it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show. I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash First Draft Writers to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is George Saunders, author of 11 books, including Lincoln and the Bardo, which won the 2017 Man Booker Prize for the Best Work of Fiction in English and was a finalist for the Golden Man Booker, in which one Booker winner was selected to represent each decade in the 50 years since the prize's inception. His stories have appeared regularly in The New Yorker since 1992. The short story collection, 10th of December, was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the inaugural Folio Prize in 2013 and the Story Prize. He has a degree in geophysics from the Colorado School of Mines and has worked as a geophysical prospector in Indonesia, a roofer in Chicago, a doorman in Beverly Hills, and a technical writer in my hometown of Rochester, New York. He has taught in the creative writing program at Syracuse University since 1997. His new story collection, Liberation Day, explores ideas of power, ethics, and justice. The nine stories in the collection feature dystopian futures, realistic conundrums, tender missives, existential reckonings, unfulfilled dreams, and focus on our human connections. We began with me asking Saunders this question. What does Liberation Day mean to you? Like, not not the story, but the word, uh. the, the phrase.
1: You know, sometimes with these titles, I, you just find a, a phrase that you feel at some deep visceral level that it applies to many or all of the stories. And, and in a certain way, when I decide on a title, I don't even really go beyond that. I'm like, Liberation Day. And then I scan through or scroll through each story and go, yep, 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 yep. It's almost like a container that each of the story fit in correctly, you know, when I applied it uh, to them in my mind. But basically, uh, for me, it's kind of like this, it hinges on the idea that we have, um, you know, life is uncomfortable a lot of times. There's so much loss and confusion and all that. And I think, you know, we all long for something to happen someday so that all that stuff will stop. All that confusion will stop and you'll feel completely uh, whole and, um everything will make sense to you so that's you know in one sense liberation day is just this, this sense, the sense the wish that the itching will stop you know <laughs> that, that like finally it all make sense and i'll win you know or i'll be an unbelievable good person no no question always you know or um my dream will come true so and, and, but of course we know that that's kind of you know it's kind of an empty hole but it, it doesn't really happen in this life for most of us you know you 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 life is the process of struggling with the burden rather than having somebody lift the burden off so part of that was you know some of the stories are about someone who thinks if they just did this everything would be fine and then they sort of find out that that isn't the case that's one level and the other level is maybe a little more in a buddhist sense you know that the one relief we could possibly get in this life is to get free of the self you know to not be so tied up in in ourselves um and I think for a precious few people in the world, that's actually possible. You know, I'm not one of them, but but I've you know met a few. Um, but then for somebody like me, you know, to lose this self, I I would miss it. You know, I enjoy it. I I, I enjoy this. You know, this this self. Uh, so that was another pivot in the in the book. So in the end, what it really came to me was to mean was sort of like. Uh, wishing for perfection and finding out that you can't have it and either accommodating that or not accommodating it but I'm not sure I mean I, you can tell by the way I'm rambling on I'm not sure it's early in the, the life of the book and I just you know like we talked before uh, the decisions I make in writing are almost all intuitive and they kind of stop there they don't really go into the rationalization part They're like liberation day yeah that's it
0: do you think that you're you're coming to later stages of your own life, and that you've written so many books, that anything has changed for you in terms of what truly concerns you about the human condition.
1: Yes, that's a great question. I, I think early on, I, in the first couple of books, I was just so shocked, you know, that life could be difficult, and it, it you know we were we didn't have any money, and uh, we had little kids, and it wasn't that difficult, but it was more difficult than I'd planned it to be. So I think the early books were about suffering and sorrow kind of maybe localized you know like like in a capitalist system here's what sucks you know that that was kind of the thing and as i'm getting older i i think one we're not as poor as we used to be so that's nice but then you start to think well it's still about sorrow and suffering but maybe about the bigger causes you know like like the universal causes that why, why are people always struggling with difficulty and why is life so random and sometimes so harsh? So I think in that way the the palette has gotten a little bit larger, you know, that I'm not necessarily, uh, I mean, some of these stories, there's nothing particularly terrible in the person's life. Like even that one my house that you just mentioned, he, he's okay, you know, uh, but the sorrow and the suffering persist, you know? So I think that's that's one thing. And then, you know, the other thing, practically speaking, since we're talking to writers is, You know, I felt like the early arc of my life was to try to find a way to sound unique and to maybe do something a little new. That was the you know new enough to get published. And that was when I was young. That was really a you know, as I got into my thirties and didn't have a book, it became really a a focus. Like I have got to get, I've got to write in a way that people can't help but notice. That was a a thing for me. Um, So that's a a strong motivation at the beginning, Um, and then I think as you then you do, you know, you, you find a way to be, uh, distinctive. Great. Then immediately you start clinging to the side of the pool. Like, okay, um, I have a one book out, it got praised for a, B and C. Therefore I I'm, that's who I am. I have to do a, B and C all the time. You know, when that becomes a trap because suddenly you're the guy who, whatever, you know, is funny or writes about capitalism. So, and meanwhile, you also become aware that your talent is pretty slender. You know, it's not like I'm, I'm not a kind of writer who can do everything. I'm, I'm very, very narrow ledge of ability. So as you get older, there's a kind of that, uh, it's a trap from several different directions. One is, um, your talent is, you know, your fear of repeating yourself because you, you kind of know that you only do two or three things well. So, <laughs> so you always kind of reworking that turf. Um, and, but at the same time, you want to be taking chances. Cause otherwise, you know, you're, you'll be dead. And then, and finally this, the idea that you, you're trying to accommodate uh, the whole truth of life, you know, in one or two stories and, uh, and that's it. so so it's been fun, you know, and this book was really such a riot for me because I found myself doing new things within my old talent set, which is really, a, you know, kind of a, a nice thing. So it's, 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 a, it's interesting. As you have written for 20 or 30 years, you're kind of looking around going, where haven't I stood yet? You know, <laughs> what haven't I done?
0: Yeah, I was thinking that there's some metaphor going around my head, which is like that all politics are local. And what I mean by that in a way is that like you can do new things like you or anyone who's a writer can do new things and go to the edge. And you're you're exploring like the politics of what it means to be a mom or the politics of what it means to be someone hanging on a wall. That's kind of a slave for someone else, but that the local it still comes back to like the human soul in all stories. And I think in a way right. that's what you were talking about in your last book, um, you know, with the Russian writers, that mm-hmm. it all comes back to being local, but we put all these different dressings on it and, and our own souls are, are unique. It's not that they're not, but that that is the meaning of life, what we are yeah, that's, doing.
1: That's that's brilliant. And it's also true, you know, from a, from a writing perspective, that you might have a big political intention or a big, moral ethical or whatever but the right the reader only buys it if if we get on the local level you know and it's it really it has to do with you know posture how am i standing do my feet fit do my shoes fit my feet um what kind of day is it and i think because we're doing a sort of magic trick which is to say once upon a time blah 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 and the reader knows it's not true we're just making it up so it that puts the burden on us of of uh, proving it in every line And one of the, as we talked last time, one of the great ways of proving it is by specificity. And that's interesting because if I'm sitting over here, imagining uh, a person walking to the store in the rain, for example. Okay. And I'm trying to convince you of of the reality of that. to just say that it gets us about halfway, you know, Elizabeth walked to the store in the rain, but you're kind of like, yeah, okay, sure. Then I have to start thinking about what, it what, particular is happening to her. So in my mind, it came up, she's coming home from the store, actually, and her bags, the, the, the uh, paper bags are getting wet. So she's got the feeling that these bags might start falling apart in a minute. Uh, she's got some water in her shoes, so it's squeaking. Uh, she's got glasses like I do, and so she's getting, they're fogging up, you know. So as soon as you start piling on those details, in a certain way, you're putting, you're injecting yourself into the story because that's just my memories of walking home from a store in the rain. And then also the reader does the same thing. She remembers, you know, the concept, paper bags wet in the rain. She might remember fogged up glasses. So this localizing that you're talking about, it has to do linguistically with, with specificity. And then the sentences also get tighter. Once you start having to put those in, the sentences get more interesting. And what, but what's really happening is we're mutually reminding ourselves that we're kind of the same, you know, not, not identical, but. But if I say that thing about the paper bags and that speaks to you at all, suddenly you and I are kind of crouched over that character and we're all sort of caring for her in a certain way. you know. So I think you're right. And it it doesn't matter, it could be a sci-fi world, she could be a dragon, it doesn't really matter. But if we're um, concentrating together on the physical things that are, and and emotional things that are happening to her, we're loving her and we're breathing life into her and we're having a sort of a little three-way party actually between reader, writer, and character.
0: So many of your stories are interested in things that change the brain, that can erase the brain, that can reprogram the brain. And I wonder what you think about your brainwaves on story. Like when you're writing, does that feel different than other times? And what if we could capture that somehow?
1: Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think it does. And I think that's why I love it so much is because I have, you know, I have a very busy mind, very monkey minded and kind of uh, neurotic. And, you know, but when I'm writing, which for me mostly is means revising, you know, sitting with a page in front of me and a, and a pen or pencil to make corrections. Um, that ruminating thing really goes way down. I get my mind gets very quiet. It's It's just, it's almost like, I mean, I, just saw this really wonderful movie called the Alpinist and it's about rock climbing. And they talk about, you know, when you're doing that, you're not, you you really can't worry about anything. You're just trying to do the next hold. Um, So I think it's kind of like that. And I really love that. I love that, that feeling. And I'm pretty sure it's good for me. Like if I can get a good two or three hours of editing in, I just feel refreshed when I come off the page and I feel kind of uh, quiet minded more than usual. Um, so I'm sure it's related to so many other, you play sports, your mind goes into that mode maybe. Um, but then it's interesting cause there is something else, you know, you're making decisions of a, of, of a linguistic sort, you know, you're, you're quiet minded, you read a, a, a phrase and you go, eh, you know, there's something that goes, ah, no, no, no. And for me, there's a kind of almost a Rubik's cube thing that happens where I see, or I, I can work through the different iterations of the sentence that are possible. And then there's a real strong sense of preferring one over the other who knows on what basis, but I know it, you know, make that change, read it again. Oh, there's a little something, there's still a bump in the carpet, fix that, you know? Um, so it's not exactly quiet minded. There is something going on. You're making decisions. Uh, you're also at speed kind of like it's, it's some version, some wordless version of this thought. If I make this change, what does that do to what came before and what came after, you know, you just feel it in your gut. Ah, that, ah, yeah. Oh, that's better. That's much better, you know? So, so it's, it's not a quiet mind, but it's, I think it's a mind that's not, um, stupidly ruminating, you know, it's not, it's not creating problems. It's solving a problem that's right in front of you. So I don't know if that resonates with with how you feel when you're writing, but it's a very special state and I really crave it. You know, really, when I'm not doing it, I really crave it
0: yeah well it's interesting because it's not like a flow state exactly it's like a flow state with uh, some mechanics added in
1: Mm, yeah that's really nice right exactly yeah because i read that book about flow and i was like no that's not it doesn't seem like that's quite it there's something else and it's not exactly meditation it's it's maybe more similar to that um but yeah so it's very interesting and it's it feels good you know doesn't it i mean but it's funny, you can feel you can get the benefits of that even on a shitty day, you know, when things aren't working out and you didn't make good decisions, I think you're still in that mindset, although I, I can remember you know the, the days when you don't get into that state. and and usually, for me, it's because I have too many ideas before I sit down. You know, like make sure to get this in there. Oh, I just realized the story is about why. Let me go through and change it uh, with that in mind. That stuff that doesn't work for me because that's not responding to the text. It's overriding it. Which which for me is always makes a frustration.
0: Where does your somatic intelligence come into that process?
1: Mm, I hunch. <laughs> no, I, I just no, I don't uh well I you know it's funny, I was as we're talking, I was just remembering something and I kind of was a little concerned. I used to write at work a lot when I was, the first book really was written at work. And um I can remember getting a kind of a body buzz from that. Like I'd sit very straight and be Editing on the computer at a high state of attention and I would get a kind of a, a buzz that I sort of associate with meditation and that doesn't happen anymore. Now it's, it's almost just like uh, I just turn the body off and I'm just sitting there, you know, for hours at a time. Although one thing is I know like I always edit on the page rather than on the screen and that has something to do with the, just the vision. You know, the, I think I pick things up. Uh, I pick up more mistakes for sure when I'm on the page. And I somehow I'm able to get a deeper sense of immersion if it's right in front of me. And there's also something really nice about the uh, the tactile feeling of crossing something out. Like I have I have this little ruler that I that I it's a half. I broke it a long time ago. I just keep it. And when I have a you know a line to cut, I always get the ruler and, and make this nice brisk line through it. So.
0: If you think about it, like it sounds like you haven't maybe paid attention in that way. But if you think about it and you think back to a story that you wrote where you just like hit on something that just felt right. If you go back, do you think you do feel that in your body?
1: Um, I think what I, I I feel like what I do is I remember having felt that in my body, in my body, you know, in other words, like, if I, especially like with humor, you know um, sometimes you write something thinking it will be funny and I don't laugh then, but the first time I read it after that, I'll laugh. And then I'm like, okay, check. You laughed, and I don't ever laugh again. You, I, you know, it's just kind of like you, you. Um, maybe it's like a tour guide. You know, who's done who's done a, a cavern tour six thousand times. She knows everybody's going to be impressed at this one place. For her, it's not such a big deal anymore. But she kind of remembers that at this waterfall, everybody's going to want to take pictures. So that's tricky too, though, because you can, you know, you can say to yourself, "That's a funny line," and then ten thousand reads later, you might want to reconsider. Maybe it's not funny anymore, or maybe, maybe that moment shouldn't be funny in the story, you know? So I I think what, you know, the the one thing I've really, I'm kind of in awe of is the way that your mind, the mind can take on a job, like writing a four page story and account for all of the, I mean, really millions of variations that are possible in that story. You know, you change one word, it changes the whole story. And yet we can do that. You know, we, we can get better at doing it. Uh, We can get more comfortable with the discomfort in a sense you know like the the the, um like i'm a pretty controlling person and i don't like things that aren't nailed down and finished but in a story you have to be okay with that until the very end you know you and even then but i mean you're you never you have to keep all the boxes open till the very last minute of writing a story so that means you have to for me i have to live with the uncertainty of knowing that the story is not done until i send it and even then it's not done, which is for me a great practice because I'm such a control freak. But, you know, the, the power of the mind to take this invented, make this thing up. Um, it's got millions of changeable elements, you know, every word, every yeah, million. And, he, and yet we can kind of process it. We can work with it. And then I can take this complex thing, send it to you. And you can read it and start weeping. That's crazy. You know, it's and it's such a it's such a good advertisement for the mind, and especially, I think, for the subconscious and the power that we have that maybe we don't tap in real life, you know, because I'm not in that state we talked about. I'm not in that state at any other time. But when I'm writing, although sometimes like um, following when I used to meditate more following that, I was a little bit in that state out in the world, I, I felt like, but man, the untapped reservoir of, of um, well, it's compassion, actually, you know, but. But it's the untapped reservoir for complexity that we have is just amazing, you know. And, and you're just a little bit reminded of it when you're writing a your story. How, how powerful your mind is.
0: So I have notes on just about every story, and I wanted to talk about Liberation Day. You know, one of the things I was asking about the body because in Liberation Day, and I'll I'll kind of share the basic concept, and if I mischaracterize it, please let me know. But it's basically like there's these these people and their brains have been kind of erased or programmed to be like storytellers of a certain genre and they're kept. They're like slaves. They're instruments. In some ways they're like instruments of like porn in a way. Like there's something also graphic about what they do. They're hung on the wall and they they tell stories. They've been given a topic and they somehow download information or become very adept, and then they perform for these people. They seem to be like the least human in the story, but they're the most human, at least through your narrator that we meet, who's really talking about feeling and in a way, like how dangerous it is to feel, but also how meaningful it is. I'm curious about this story, about these people that are hung on the wall to tell stories that are kept like slaves who actually are the most feeling in the room?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, like right now, I, I don't have a book going on. And I'm kind of starting to cast around for something. And the first thing I always look for is uh something fun to do with my voice like i wouldn't think oh i want to write about the american revolution or i want to write about patriarchy i just want to i, I want to know how the voice is going to sound and for me often it's, it's a comic thing or a goofy you know kind of overboard thing so that story just started because i i i wanted to um give myself i just finished the mom of bold action actually it's a very kind of taut little almost realist story you know the language is very tight 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 so I just wanted an excuse to go overboard and do some big language, you know. Um, and so that was one aspiration. And then also, I, you know, in that Russian book, there's that story by Turgenev called The Singers. And somehow that title was in my head, The Singers, The Singers. And I was working on a screenplay for the Semper Girl Diaries, a story from another book in which the idea is that these women are, are hung in uh, yards as lawn ornaments, these, these kind of like poor women. So somehow those three things were on my mind and I just sat down and you know, one of those mysterious things, but I don't really remember where it came from, but suddenly there were these, this guy, Jeremy was on a wall pinioned. you know, he's got, he's sort of like literally like almost crucified on the wall, uh, but he wasn't unhappy about it. And he was talking, uh, preparing to to make a big speech and he made this crazy speech about being on a ship, a sailing ship, you know? So <laughs> it, in some ways it looks like I had a high concept in mind, but actually I was just using what I had handy on a particular day in, in my writing room to try to get something going, you know? So in, in first, the first couple page were kind of a mess, like, okay, wow, wow, where is he? He's on a wall, why is he on a wall? Okay, don't worry about it. Let him make his speech and he makes a speech. Is that a funny speech? Kind of funny. Okay, then you polish that up just by sound, and then you step back and go, okay, what the hell is going on here? You know, who put them up there? What you know? And at that point, for me, it's really critical to say, I don't know yet. I, I don't know. Write the next section. You know, um, so so then, it's it's connected to that one, Elliot Spencer, and that we find out that these people have had their brains scraped. They're, in other words, they they have their brains are fully intact and ready to go, but there's nothing in them basically. You know, they're kind of like a computer when you first buy it, I guess. And I don't know why I keep writing about that but it's it's interesting to me and um yeah so then they so then i I don't i'm kind of i'm also all over the place because i don't really know what i can say about that except that it, it happened in stages you know a little bit at a time uh trying to amuse myself and then suddenly you step back and you go oh this this is uh about you know whatever it's about
0: Yeah, they ended up basically telling the story of the Battle of Little Bighorn. Yeah, of course they did.
1: Why not, you know?
0: (laughs) Yes, I mean, it naturally goes from, you know, scraping your brain to, you know, this bloody war where the white people lost badly. You know, it's also known as Custer's Last Stand. It's like almost like your brain maybe wanted to gravitate to write towards this story, but you didn't want to write a story just about Custer's Last Stand in itself, you were using this yes. lens to write about it.
1: No, that's exactly right. And you know, and that's exactly it. Because what I had been researching that material for years, and I went out there a couple of years ago, and, uh, but when I thought about that material as just straight fiction, I was like, I don't know, first all, it's been done to death, yeah, everyone's done that, you know, it's, it's not a new thing. Uh, and I thought for a while of trying to do that, the same approach that I did in Lincoln and the Bardo, like, you know, divide it up and let but somehow that seemed a little bit you know derivative which it was so i just really uh kept reading about that stuff and, and then there was one moment in the story where this guy who's who is uh you know sort of programmed to make these speeches he needed something else to make a speech about and literally just i thought give him custer what the hell you know really i mean that so i think sometimes you know in, in, when we talk about craft we kind of underplay the play the we understate the playfulness the importance of playfulness like there was at that point there was no intellectual support for that idea at all there was no reason it should be custer except i wanted it to be and i think sometimes that's actually a pretty good motivator what do you feel like doing you know is it going to be fun and then for me there's a second element of like i don't know you know i don't know if that how's that going to work like the, the english major in me says how is that theme going to be relevant and i just go oh go sit down i'm going to do it you know that kind of orneriness and i think that you know hard to talk about, but I think readers sense that, you know, that this was kind of like a problem I posed for myself. Could I make it not random that Custer was in the book, in the story about these oppressed enslaved people? And that little moment where you go, I'm not sure, I don't know. That That to me is very valuable, you know. If you say, oh, of course, because Custer represents this and, you know, then I think you're going to end up with a dead fish on your hand, you know, because you've already decided what it means. But for me, I, I had the joy of wanting to try it. I had all that backlog of knowledge and that kind of almost like, it's almost like if you took like a rom-com, you take two people who don't belong together and trap them in an elevator for eight hours. Suddenly they fall in love, you know? So that process is rewriting. You, you put Custer in the story and you go, okay, guys, you're going to have to get along because I put you in the same story and I'm not taking you out. <laughs> so, so find things to talk about, you know? And at the end, you know, I, I felt like, um, they did. They did find things to talk about. Just, it was just an adventure, you know. Just a, uh, And I'm, I I think that's really what I'm all about at this point, is trying to give myself an artistic challenge It turns out to be an adventure. Otherwise, like, why? You know, why?
0: Well, in a way, I think when you write stories like these, it justifies your entire life because what you were talking about is this backlog, is that all these things that you store away – like whether it was a factoid when you were working as an engineer in Rochester or your trip to try to drink what Ken Kesey drank or whatever, like the, your, your interest in Custer for h- however way that came out from research in your last book, it all kind of converges and comes out and it it does in some way justify like everything yeah. you've done it's like oh i can that's all a tax write off my whole life experience it's <laughs> just a tax write off for this oh, yeah, product I
1: love, I love it yeah and i think too you know one thing i've noticed though is there's a there's a sort of a i always i sometimes think of myself as like a bouncer at, at the door of club story you know so so you got the story and someone said hey remember when you were a roofer put that in there And you have to be like, hold on a second, step behind that red rope for a minute. I'm going to check to see if the story needs you. You know, does the story feel like it needs that. Then he he turns he goes into the club and comes out and says, you know what? That was a great time when you were a roofer, not this story. And you know, because if you, I've been in the mode where I'm trying to include things because they happened to me, that's not it. But as you say, you have them there in backlog. And they sometimes want to be titrated in certain stories, you know, and, and that was definitely with this cluster stuff. It felt so ripe, you know, that, yeah, it's mysterious.
0: Well, it's kind of yeah. like an edict to go out and live, right?
1: Yes. And also, uh, yeah, a hundred percent. I agree with that. And also it's an edict to whatever's happening to you, even if it's not so great, you know, even if it's not so glamorous. Uh, I, I remember as a younger person just saying, let's pretend, let's just assume that this is going to be good for my writing no matter what it is like even if it was uh, when i was an engineer you'd look at the calendar and go oh god i'm not gonna be able to write for a week for sure i, I i'm barely going to get my work done okay then you then i would say to myself but let's just assume that this rest is good for you you know or you end up getting trapped at the dmv for three hours during your writing time let's pretend that this is or let's assume that this is going to be good for us in some way and it, you know in some ways it's it's whistling in the dark but It's for me, it's better than saying, oh, no, it's all ruined. You know, I had a terrible day and my writing suffered. If I just sort of say, you know, you never know, you might need a scene in the DMV someday, you know, or or you might need a story about a guy who um, is frustrated for a week straight because his work has taken over his life or while you're at work during the week, you might hear an incredible anecdote by one of your colleagues. You know, so uh, to me, it's best to leave the door open and just say it could all be useful.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe not even only as a writer. I mean, it might be useful when you are like, you remember some skill you learn that helps you with your parenting or something that helps you write a screenplay like that. Like, it's just kind of like paying attention, like Mary Oliver said yeah. about, you know, the great work of our life.
1: Yeah. And I noticed that that's something I'm really trying to do now is become a little less. Well, again, controlling. And if I find myself in a situation, just go, you know what? you've got the next 20 minutes to either feel like crap or feel happy you know what, what do you think is probably the better choice you know uh or and then you know sometimes that can turn into sort of a you know like a oh it's all good you know i don't like that idea but the idea of saying well let's also not go to the default of it's all bad you know let's just sort of as you say be present and see see what happens but that's you know i'm i'm, I'm noticing that one of the things that happens is you get older you get grumpy you know i'm getting less a little bit grumpy so i'm, I'm I'm working with that. I'm working with Grumpy.
0: Well, speaking of of maybe in the same family as Grumpy, you have a lot of tattletales in your story. In your stories. <laughs> a lot of people telling of on others. You have, I wrote down some of these examples <laughs> of tattletales. You have, um, let me see where where they are. Like Jen is telling on her coworker. That was a story. Um, Uh You have adult Mike who's kind of telling on people. You have Ghoul Brian who's kind of telling on people. And maybe that's just good for fiction. Maybe it's something you didn't realize.
1: I didn't. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about talking to a great reader like you is I I literally didn't see that. But that's going to be that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, well, it's certainly, yeah, I don't know. I really, I I hadn't realized that. I mean, it is a good device, you know, because suddenly the, the, what was secret isn't, and that's always good. But I don't know. I I have to, we'll have to think about that a little bit. The tattletale, that could have been a title, the tattletale.
0: (laughs) Well, there's something Uh, too, that maybe links to something bigger with that is that there's that some of your characters in these stories and others that I've read, there's like a superiority. There's a power structure. There's either it's baked in that like Jen felt better. You know, she, she was not really a great uh, person either. Uh, This was called a thing at work and she was sleeping with a guy who works for Kodak and charging, charging their time in the hotel to Kodak Meanwhile, she's telling on someone who's like a lower-level employee for stealing toilet paper and paper towels. But there's a superiority that I think she feels by doing that. And yeah, there's yeah. there's a super- superiority that Alma feels in, in a story where her husband was cheating on her, and but she was still better than maybe some of the women there. Or there's yeah. moments even where Debbie, the woman that was cheating with uh, Alma's husband, feels superior. So... To me, it's part of this, this pulsing that I see. I see like, it's almost like a heart that's getting bigger and smaller and bigger and Mm. smaller in your character's psyche that I see Mm. where they feel confident and then they don't feel confident and they feel like they're going to take over the world and then they don't. It's like, I think that, you know, Debbie had it, Al Roosten had it. A a few of your characters really have that.
1: Mm, That's nice. Yeah. Cause you know, that's true when you're, when you're feeling superior, that's a way of feeling impervious to everything you're above it all. But that always has to be based on a bit of a lie. You know, you, you you're always, you're always leaving something out if you're, if you feel like you're above it all. And so maybe this tattletales is, is the moment when, you know, they get outed for, for that, that false, the falseness that they've based on. But it also, you know, also makes me think about storytelling. And, you know, when I wrote that Russian book, I, I was really struck by how, especially in Chekhov, a story can be kind of a, it starts with a certain understanding of the characters and their situation. And it's almost like the story exists completely to deepen that understanding, you know, to make you see that your early judgment was a little too easy. And even the structure of the story could be understood as a way to quickly make your understanding more complex. But the story itself is a tattletale. You know, it says, once upon a time, there was a guy who was completely happy and powerful. And the story goes, no, he wasn't. Let me tell you why, you know? So the story runs up and whispers in your ear and you go, oh, oh, I see. He's not really confident at all. He's actually quite self-doubting, poor guy, you know? But he's doing pretty well, isn't he? And the story says, no, no, actually he's stealing from work. You know, he's he's embezzling. So the the story itself can be a way of saying uh, whatever, whatever construct we make conceptually about people is always partial, you know, it's always incomplete. And then the story can say, let me show you the level behind that. And you go there and it's fascinating. Oh, I didn't realize it. Then the story goes another level and tattletales again. And pretty soon you're getting a really, really complicated nuanced picture of it that maybe you you can't judge at all. You know, by the end, you're like, yeah, that's that's how life is. And I, yeah, it's difficult to know. You know, at the end of that story, a thing at work, I don't, I kind of feel, you know, vaguely for the Brenda, the woman who stole, the kind of lower class woman. But I also think she's got some issues, you know. And, I, and I, I understand that this woman, Jen, is kind of a pain, but I'm, I'm kind of feeling for her. I kind of get her. I enjoyed her, you know, I, I sort of. And then this guy, Tim, who kind of sided with the power, you know, I understand why he did it. So I think that's, you know, if, the, if you read the early draft of that story, it was much harsher on Jen and on Tim. But as I wrote it, 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 it seemed like the story wanted to make their reasoning more sound, actually. You know, it it, it worked better as a story when they were somewhat more reasonable in their in their actions. I don't know. I don't know anything. This is confusing.
0: Well, I think (laughs) that you have a lot of characters that work really hard to justify and rationalize their behavior, which doesn't mean they're always wrong. But, you know, that that we need that at the end of the day. We all need that at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. And I think we also need to see that other people do the same shit we do. You know, like when you when you do something when when one does something wrong and makes an elaborate ex- explanation for it in the mind, and I read about that, I feel a little better about my own crazy mind. You know that it's not just I'm not the only crazy person in the world. I'm not the only self flagellating or neurotic or self aggrandizing person in the world. We're, we're all doing some version of that. Uh, and there's something comforting about just dropping into another head, head and going, "Oh yeah, look, I'm <laughs> she worries about the same things I do in the same inefficient way." You know.
0: I think, too, there's something about some of the worlds that you create. I mean, definitely in in Ghouls, where they're really trapped in this amusement park, theme park, sort of alternate reality that they're living in, where there's like literally a ceiling. And when I was done, I was thinking, you know what, like, we're trapped, too. Like the sky is endless, but we're still trapped in our own world. It's much, much bigger, but it's kind of the same.
1: That story was so much fun. And I was kind of uh, trying to harken back to some of the voices in that book, Civil Warland and Bad Decline," my first book, just because it was, I, I had read that on audiobook and I thought, oh, this is kind of fun. This, this is still speaking to me, even though it was years ago. So I just started goofing around in that voice. And yeah, and in the end I thought, oh yeah, well, of course, every, uh, Every belief system, every cultural, every culture is kind of a trap of sorts, you know, because it takes this vast universe that's completely unknowable to us and boils it down, you know, to to a system of laws or a system of beliefs. And even the most expansive belief system has got, you know, c- concepts and it's got um, uh, human generated ideas. So that story for me was kind of about the moment when in ways large or small, we realized that you know, that we, we live our lives by these uh, systems of belief. And of course we have to have a system of belief and some are better than others, but there's always that moment when you think the the universe outside is actually so crazy and unknowable. It's like, we're, you know, I said somewhere we're, we're like, uh, um, on the back of a sleeping tiger, you know, and the tiger always wakes up and, you know, it, it, hurts us or it kills us or it hurts somebody we care about and that's always possible you know so then when that happens and in the story it happens to him in a particularly dramatic way you know what are you left with then you know what's your what's the next move when you realize that literally every thought you have is a, a concept that isn't quite right you know We're, we're these little mach- these reasoning machines that are built on really old software you know kind of strange uh Um, it doesn't mean you throw up your hands and do nothing, but it, it, I think it's sort of a induced humility, you know, every time I have an idea, I want to go, "Eh, maybe, you know, and somehow the. and I think what he learned in that story is if you combine these poor reasoning machines that are our mind with extreme or violent action, then you're really making a mistake. Like if I'm, if I'm sitting here in my room and there's nobody around and I have a crazy idea that's not right about whatever. No harm, you know. But if I go out into the street with a gun, suddenly, you know, or I or I attack the U.S. Capitol, that then suddenly the, the ideas plus violence uh, equal trouble, you know. So I think so. In his case, he's been doing violent in the story. Ghoul, he's been doing violent things because that's what the culture told him to do. And at that last minute, he has a that terrifying moment. That I think we all dread where we go. Oh, I've lived wrong, you know. What now? Mm-hmm.
0: I think so many of your stories and that's what you're you're known for is that they go back to this deeply empathetic sense of what it means to be human, a deeply you use the word compassion like just compassion for all people cuz we are all just really suffering to understand what it means to be human, you know, no one really asked to be born and here we are just trying to figure it out together, trying to like I believe that people are, are basically good. And I think so many of your stories go back to this tenderness for the human experience, even when you don't plan to. And how do you feel about that?
1: I, I like that idea. I mean, to me it's, um, you know, I have a tendency to be a little bit of a Pollyanna if I'm not careful. So what I have to do is, is kind of surrender to craft. And what I mean by that is, if I put a person in a story, I'm tr- I'm trying to not root for them in any direction. I don't care if they're good or bad or I don't care. But I do think I owe them the benefit of my full attention. You know, so if somebody is going to do a bad thing in a story like like that woman, Jen, in, in a thing at work, she she's in the wrong. I think in what she does, she, she's got power and she abuses it. OK, but I have to give her the benefit of my attention And then I feel a little relieved because all that really means is I have to make you believe in her and her reality. You know, I have to give her some traits. Uh, And in that case, it's a very internal story. So I have to make her think in a way that compels you to keep listening to her. So I have to kind of make her funny. You know, I can give her specific things. Look, if I say, if I want to convey that she's a little bit mean, well, I have, okay, then I think up a specific interaction with her stepson where she kind of dismisses him, you know, that, that, so, so. What we're calling empathy or compassion, it can look like something different. It looks like paying attention to the characters on the page, which in turn looks like trying to make them not just stick figures, which means, you know, being more specific about what they do. And this is where for writers, it's kind of cool because when I think, how do I make a God, how do I make a character come alive? I'm like, well, you're pretty funny. You know, you like to imagine funny stuff. Just do that. So in a certain way the, the sort of general takeaway might be takeaway might be if a writer wants to do all the good things she has to do what she does well whatever it is she might that might not be what she wants to do well you know I never when I was younger I never thought of myself as a funny writer but if if it turns out you're an amazing writer of nature scenes you can be sure that the love in your work is going to come through when you write a nature scene so it's kind of circular you 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 want to do something well uh, which means you want to show love for it your best way of showing love for it is to do it well. So to me, that's kind of a like, I, I always try to reduce my anxiety around writing. And when I think just do what you like, then I, then the anxiety goes away, as opposed to make sure that you are compassionate, you know, that I can't work with, but to have fun, I can work with.
0: Is there anything you want to talk about with this collection that we didn't get to?
1: Well, I mean, the one thing, it, it really was interesting to um, put it together because what I, the way I'll do it is I'll write, for some period and then towards the end of the period i'll feel like yeah i think this is a book i don't know why but i think this if i do one more story in this mode it'll be a book so i did that i had all the stories out i cut two of them because i didn't they didn't one of us wasn't that great and the other one just didn't fit so then you're left with however many and then there's always that phase where you try to think well what order do they go in you know and that's very important for a collection i think so then i take index cards, and I write the first line and the last line in the title, and I just start playing with them like a Rubik's Cube, you know? And so I did that, got it in the right order, and at the 11th hour, I added that story. I wrote that story in my house in like five days, which is pretty quick cool for me, added that, and then I read it again. And the interesting thing was it left me in a state of, um, I don't know how to describe it, I wouldn't have been able to talk at all about what the book was about at that point you know it, the stories are so they're so various and they're different different modes of realism and their sci-fi and all that but when i was done i kind of had a nice feeling of like that was intense you know like when i was in, i was in college in colorado at school of mines and uh in the 70s and there was i was living in this kind of it was barely a frat house i think they disbanded it the next year but a lot a lot of skiers you know and um uh, skateboarders and climbers. And the highest praise you could get was, and I'll try to do this Colorado accent, which I won't do well, but they were like, yeah, dude, that was intense. You know, that was the highest praise. You were intense. And so I, I've i carried that over. Like, I don't really know what my work means often. Uh, I mean, I hope it means something. And you know, in the process of revising it, you're trying to make it mean more. But at the end of the day, I kind of imagine those guys, you know, like they read my book, go, oh, dude, that was intense. Then I'm then I'm happy.
0: Now what they say in Colorado, it, it, it's a little bit different uh, circumstances is like, that was epic.
1: Yeah, yeah, epic. Yeah, epic, right, right. That's it. That's another thing, yeah. And yeah.
0: now it's now it's a verb. Like we were epicing.
1: Oh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, you know, because really, I mean... I have to remind myself of this, especially when I start talking about my books. I think the writer is most like a, a roller coaster designer. You know that the, the idea is not anything other than for you to get off the roller coaster and go on again, maybe, or at least go, oh, that was epic. You know, uh, and so there's like that first, those first few seconds as the roller coaster car pulls in, where you're not saying anything. You're just maybe you look at your friend like, oh shit, that was, you know, um, that's I think what all the revision is about, you know, then, okay, you get out of the roller coaster and you start discussing it like, Oh, that third hill was really, that's to me is sort of a secondary pleasure. It's fun and it's important. And it's called literary criticism, you know, but for the writer, I think the, um, the first goal is to just stun, you know, and if you've stunned, then probably all this other stuff we're talking about will have happened. You know, you don't get a stunned reaction at the end of the story that isn't about something or isn't, you know doesn't have something profound in it but my thing is you can't get something profound in it by willing to but sometimes i can by trying to stun then i can do it i understand that that motivation better you know so i hope that's what the book does you know it points along the way and maybe at the end but...
0: yeah and i feel like your stomach drops
1: yeah exactly that's yeah and you know and i think for me that now this is a, this metaphor is a little strained but in a story the stomach drops i think when it's, that's almost identical to one's judgment being suspended. You think you know what the writer wants you to think of this character, then suddenly something happens, like, oh. And you're, you realize that you're, one, you realize you're judging all the time. And maybe you realize that you're judging too soon all the time, you know, b- before the, the tattletale comes out and tells you the next bit, bit of information you've already judged. Then you have to overturn your judgment you know, I used to go on these nonfiction pieces for, um, for magazines. And one of the things I really started to crave was a certain moment when, you know, you go out into the field. Like I went, I did a, a trip where I drove the whole Mexican border, uh, from Brownsville to San Diego. And, you know, I go out there with my liberal progressive ideas about the border and, you know, gonna, gonna, uh, write against the, the the anti-immigration people. And then you go through this thing, you know, for 10 days, you're, Weaving in and out of Mexico. You're talking to people on every side of the issue. And, um, at the very, very end I was in, there's a place in San Diego where you have to walk like five miles on the beach and then you get to the, um, uh, the border fence, which actually runs right out into the ocean. You know, it's very amazing. And on the other side, there's Mexico and they're having a big party over there. But for some reason on the American side, you it's inaccessible. So and go over there. And I think, you know, I could just go in Mexico easily. So, you know, you duck through the fence, you come back, um, no one's watching you. It's amazing. So just then these two border patrol guys come riding down on horses, beautiful horses, beautiful guys. And, uh, we, we have a talk and they're pretty nice. So like, you know, you, I, we could put you in jail cause you just, you know, illegally immigrated. Yeah. Um, but we talk and I kind of summed up for them, everything i learned about the border. And one by one, they swatted my ideas aside with facts. No, that doesn't work, sir. That's not true, sir. And then they rode off into the sunset and I had to walk the five miles back. But in the most lovely state, which was, I don't know anything. I've been out here for 10 days. My judgment is zero, you know, openness. Uh, And that was a great moment, you know, because yeah, all my easy ideas had been discounted. So I think a story can kind of work like that, you know, And that's a delicious feeling. It doesn't, you can't, I couldn't sustain it for very long. By the time I get back to the car, I was already, you know, revving up a new set of judgments. But boy, what a nice feeling, you know, walk along the ocean knowing zero. (laughs) No, because in that state, you're open to everything. You know, your perceptions are sharper. You're more willing to hear counter arguments. And, you know, there you are, the best self.
0: Maybe that's why you like erasing your character's brains.
1: I think that might, that is probably right. Yeah.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you as a writer?
1: I can. I, I've been reading, I've been doing this exercise because I'm doing story club. Uh, I'm just trying to read more stories. So I'm trying to read two a day. And so this is one that I, I, I had read before when I was uh, in grad school and really loved it. That's Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And this is just the first paragraph of the story. On the third day of rain, they'd killed so many crabs inside the house that Peleo had to cross his drenched courtyard and throw them into the sea, because the newborn child had a temperature all night, and they thought it was due to the stench. The world had been sad since Tuesday. Sea and sky were a single ash gray thing, and the sands of the beach, which on March nights glimmered like powdered light, had become a stew of mud and rotten shellfish. The light was so weak at noon that when Paleo was coming back to the house after throwing away the crabs, it was hard for him to see what it was that was moving and groaning in the rear of the courtyard. He had to go very close to see that it was an old man, a very old man, lying face down in the mud, who, in spite of his tremendous efforts, couldn't get up, impeded by his enormous wings. So that's the first paragraph of a story called A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings, A Tale for Children.
0: And what do you love about it?
1: Um, I love the the, the way that... Um, the, the details build up and build up and build up. So there's a, there's a, a kid in the house who's dying. The kids, the sadness of that seems to be affecting the whole world. There's a specific job that has to be done. We have to take the shellfish out and drop them over the cliff. And so by the end of it, up until that last phrase, you, you're convinced of the total reality of the thing. And then Marcus just throws in with enormous wings as a last phrase. So it's almost like you, you're so fully invested in that world, you believe in it, that when he says enormous wings you have to go uh okay and there you go and then suddenly there's a it turns out to be sort of a fallen angel you know maybe but it's just masterful because he he doesn't if he had started off to sing once there was a man with enormous old you know with enormous wings and he landed in you're already kind of resisting that from the beginning you feel the writer's concept or agenda kind of leading the way and you're like no there wasn't there wasn't there wasn't you're lying in this case, you get all the persuasion of the physical reality first, and then just the light. Oh, by the way, you know, he's got wings. <laughs> and so then suddenly you, you leave that paragraph and you you have to accept that there's an old man with wings in the courtyard.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, we were talking about that story, a thing at work. And I thought I would just, I, I went back and found um, the three previous drafts to the final one. So I'll read you the, this is how it, the story ends. In this paragraph, there's a she and a he. Um, that's Jen and Tim, and they've sort of, in um, a certain way, conspired to uh, get this woman Brenda fired. She's a word processor. She's kind of below them on the socioeconomic ladder, and they both kind of decide, yeah, she's got to go in order for us to to stay. So she uh, Brenda has been fired, and Jen comes in the next day to sort of do a post game with, with Tim. So this is how it is in the final. Uh, She knew she'd been a pain in the ass to him in the past, she said, and she'd done some real soul searching and could see that a lot of this was due to the insecurity of being a woman in a working world dominated by men and also some stuff from her childhood with her mom, who was always denying her use of the superior telescope. But anyway, she wanted him to know that she'd resolved to try to be more helpful to him in the future for real. She would brought him this truck, this little garbage truck to symbolize, well, her cleaning up or act or whatever she put the little garbage truck down on the desk so he could see how cool it was see the tiny bag of fake garbage on the back popped right out then she rolled the truck over to him and he caught it so that's the end and we know that tim has had throughout the story whenever tim doesn't want to deal with something he played with these little toy trucks on his desk so that, that was how i ended it and then i went and found some earlier versions and um so in one of them, it has that line. She, she brought him this truck, this little garbage truck to symbolize well, her cleaning up her act or whatever. And then it pivots and it says, did she still want him to fire Brenda? He asked who she said, fire who? Oh God, no, I could care less. And it goes on to say that all is well between the two women and all, all is great. So that felt a little bit not right somehow, you know, uh, there was something. So I cut that and then I replaced it. So now it's. The second version, or second to last, she bought in this truck, this little garbage truck to symbolize well, or cleaning up her act or whatever. And then I said, after that was one of those quiet mornings. People stayed in their offices. If they passed in the hall or met in the break room, they spoke quietly, if at all. But by afternoon, the quiet had passed. People came out and chatted. There was an almost happy feeling in the air, an ebullience, like the giddiness that comes with the fresh start. And that was going to be the end. Right, so I read that a couple times, like, yeah, okay, that, yeah, that, that's right. They're, they're, they're colluding and they're agreeing to make it groovy. Um, and then, um, okay, then in this, in the second, the last draft of me, it says she brought in this truck, this little garbage truck to symbolize well, her cleaning up her act, whatever. And I added the line, she put the little garbage truck down, rolled it over to him and he caught it. And then I still had that long paragraph about the ebullience. So I think what I was working towards is let's put, what's the last motion of the story? It's, um, acquiescence, you know, collusion, basically collusion. Okay. Uh, and my feeling about endings is once you get it to that point, stop. Once the collusion is established, stop. So in the final, final draft, I thought, well, if you can embody that in action, that's always better. What's the action that indicates collusion? And that's the rolling of the truck and then him accepting it. So then I just lopped off that last paragraph and we just had the ending with that action, you know. Yeah. So it's so, so I was interesting to go back and look at these because there's sort of a, a, a slow logic through it, you know, like you, you, I keep adding thinking, moving around. And then in the end, I'm like, I believe in action. That's what I believe in. Can you sum up collusion in one action? You did it. The end, you know.
0: Where do you write?
1: Um, depends. I, I had a really kind of uh hectic last couple years but i have um in this room in in i'm in los angeles i write in this room it's just a little bedroom uh and then up in uh santa cruz there's a, a writing shed up on the hillside that i that paula put up there for me and it's really nice all my guitars are up there and all my like you know pictures and all that so that's really peaceful but i you know when i was working at that engineering company i i could just i learned to write anywhere really there's just a kind of a little mental thing and i go okay now it's time to go into that mode and then it could be on an airplane it could be you know wherever but yeah
0: what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing
1: uh i don't really like to get away from writing much but i have guitars around and so if i'm feeling stuck i'll just sort of you know go sit down and play for 20 or 30 minutes and that often i think it does something neurologically where it kind of uh but also, we, you know, we did just uh, move up here to L.A., and that's been really nice for us because we, we were kind of isolated um, up in the mountains. So this is, uh, it's nice to say, well, if I want to take a break from writing today, if I want to quit early, we'll go out and get a coffee. We'll walk around, and you know, beautiful Santa Monica. So so that's kind of a nice way to make sure I don't overdo it.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Uh, to Paula. Um, uh, yeah, she's been a great reader for me for 36 years now and you know she always reads uh she reads very on an emotional basis like she kind of knows my bs you know and knows when i'm trying to pull a fast one on an ending so she'll um usually just either say "Yeah, yeah you know <laughs> which for me is crushing i don't know okay i have to do something else and as soon as she says that i know usually what's what's wrong you know i do uh or other times she'll just respond like um i finished that story 10th of december and she wrote a little post that just had tears send it you know that so that's really so she's so she's the best reader for me
0: how have you dealt with rejection
1: nah just like everybody else a pout get mad imagine writing letters to the person that rejected me uh, or sometimes I imagine saving their life I save their life and then they apologize for that rejection uh, yeah all the normal all the normal human you know like but the other thing is I'm I think I've always been pretty good. I want it so badly. I want so badly for the story to be good that I reboot pretty quickly. And I have kind of internalized a sense that, okay, if it gets rejected, then it's not doing that stunning that we talked about earlier by definition. So, okay, I'll try to take this as an opportunity to shoot higher. You know, Um, uh, sometimes if there's a, like I've had reviews in the past that were pretty harsh, but helpful. So there was one long ago, I don't even remember what book it was for or anything, but the line was uh, Saunders writes better out of love than anger, you know? And at the time I was like, oh, shut up. You don't know me because I mean, uh, he had trashed the book in other places. But over the years, that line has, has helped me so many times, you know, because it's true. I, I, I have a tendency to think of myself as a, uh, a social critic, an angry social critic, but actually that's not me at my best, you know? Um, so, so I think what I tell my students is, you know, you let criticism and rejection, just let it hit you. It's, you know, it's not, you can do about it. Let it hit you. See what sticks, you know, even a, a year later, what sticks, um, that, and, and you have to be foolish not to accept good advice just because you didn't like the source, you know? So that's the theory anyway. But I remember one time when, um, early on, I had a, a novella that ran in Harper's called Bounty. And uh, big deal, you know, a young guy, uh, big publication, they gave him about 40 pages in the magazine, which is terrific. And then the next issue, they ran two or three of the snottiest letters about that story you'd ever, you know, the, the kinds, your, your worst nightmare, uh, you know, um, there, there was a piece in the magazine about the decline of American literature. And they said, oh, and thank you for supplying us with an example <laughs> in Saunders work, you know, so in that case, I just went in the basement, I cleaned the basement of this rental, you know, for two straight days, cleaned every nook and cranny of that basement, and then finally felt like I could face the world again. So,
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Well, last time I think I would have said autumnal, but I am kind of into um, a word that I, I think is overused, but um, uh, destabilize. I like that. I, I find myself using it too much and um this week, one of my students pointed out that that was a very overused word, but I love the idea of destabilization because it means uh, you take something, you know, big and conceptual and solid and you give it a kick and it splinters into three or four things that are often more workable. If you, you know, like if you say, uh, well, any, any big category, you describe a person as a corporate idiot, then you give that a kick and destabilize it and you see, oh, actually, he's a, he's a third son. He's got a real serious knee issue. You know, you, you list all the things that he is that add up to corporate idiot, maybe. You know, but then suddenly he's he's more like you, and and therefore a little more more workable. And even if you have to, you know, oppose him, uh, you know him better, and you you can do a better job.
0: Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so grateful.
1: Oh, thank, I'm grateful too. I enjoyed it so much.
0: If you liked today's show with George Saunders, author of Liberation Day, check out my two other interviews with him on his short story collection, 10th of December, and his craft book, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 370 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Tracy K. Smith, Elizabeth McCracken, and Peter Orner. I wanna send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe, The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.